Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a brilliant and inspirational guest. She is an investor and entrepreneur, and this is the one and only Cody Sanchez. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. No doubt. So I've done a real brief intro there, Cody, but for people who do not know you, please tell them a little bit about yourself. Well, I've been in finance for a long time, which is typically pretty boring. So think big private equity firms who kind of rule the world. We don't think about them, but they own or touch about one in every $10, at least in the US economy globally, probably a higher percentage. And, and I played that game and worked on Wall Street for, let's call it 12 years, big names like Goldman Sachs, State Street, Vanguard. I used to have an office in the wharf uh, in the UK where you are. And, um, and that was great. You know, I'm a, I'm a daughter of immigrants. And so I thought that that was the peak, you know, Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, one can go no higher. And, uh, and then at some point, I realized that I was making a lot of money for people that I didn't really like doing things I didn't love to do and building a world I didn't really want to live in. And so um, I decided to go out and I built my own little holding company where I started buying businesses just like we do in private equity. They go out and they buy small mom and pop businesses and then they scale them up. And so that's what I did independently while I was still working at these companies. And then I finally exited, became a partner at another private equity firm. We did a couple funds together. Then I exited that. And then finally, um, during COVID, I realized that I had some spare time. I wasn't traveling and doing deals as often as before. And so I started writing about it on the internet. And that was right about where I mean, you were blowing up then, I think. Um, and it was January of 2020. I was sitting in California at the time in this, actually in this room in our little place here. And I thought that the world was kind of losing the ability to question things. And that is so crucial as an investor. If you can't, can't question things, how could you figure out a deal as an, an entrepreneur? If you can't question things, how can you build a business? The answer, you cannot. And thus, I thought it was a huge issue that people were not questioning things. So I started a company called Contrarian Thinking, which was a media company. And the idea was to try to get people to change the way they think and to engage all of us on not that my way is right, but question everything, including me, maybe especially me, and that that's okay. And, um, and then I quickly realized, which maybe you did as well, that people actually believe what they think. And it is very hard to get people to question their own beliefs. And so instead of just going direct and thinking about mental frameworks, I started talking about money because everybody wants it. And money can become a little bit of the financial Trojan horse, I think, to thinking critically. Because once you have skin in the game, once you understand numbers and math, it's harder for you to have these illogical jumps. And so thus began our financial media company. Awesome. Well, there's a lot there to get into. I'm curious to know, tell me about your 
growing up? Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, have you been there? You did a tour in the U.S. You know what? I actually have not been to Arizona yet. I've been to, oh. I think I've been to 18 different states so far, but I always pass over Arizona because I've just never had a, I've never had a booking or an event there. So it just hasn't happened yet. Oh, they'd love you. Arizona is an incredible state. Uh, next time you come to the States, come. Um, okay. But they, uh, the interesting part about Arizona is that it's a little like Texas and that it's it's the Wild West, but perhaps even a little wilder. And so, you know, I grew up with a father who was big into hunting. And so we grew up hunting and camping and we grew up in the wild and really respecting nature. Um, my father and I are very close. My, my family is Latino and so our whole family is quite close. And what I think is, is interesting about that is I didn't realize that doing hard physical things, you know, seeing life and death uh, very young and sort of learning to respect that uh, is such a huge value, I think, for young kids and, and also maybe for women in particular, um, because it just shows you, it shows you that the hard things aren't that hard. Nobody's dying. And that was one of my dad's favorite lines. We do business together now and He's always like, when I get frazzled about something, he just looks at me and he says, is anybody going to die? And I said, no. I said, you think we can figure it out? I'm like, yes. And so that rationality only exists when you've seen sort of the line between life and death. That's so interesting. What were you like as a kid? Were you always entrepreneurial? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I illegally stole the books from my parents at a young age and <laughs> sold them frequently. You, you sold your parents' books? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I would have a book sale out front <laughs> while they were out of town. <laughs> and I don't think I got top dollar either for those books. Um, but I was notorious for sort of my little little schemes. We did the golf ball scheme. You know, we weren't members of the club, but we go in after hours and we find the golf balls and then we clean them up and then we sell them. Um, you know, I did door-to-door -door sales for, um, what was it back then? Wrapping paper. That was something you did as a kid to raise money for your sports events. I was big into sports. So I played every sport you could imagine. And so I would go out and raise money to be able to go, you know, travel with the team. And, um, and I do recall just an obsession with the game of business. I just found it so interesting. And probably like a lot of little girls, you know, I'd watch my dad and my dad would be doing business, you know, he'd be on his phone. And so I wanted a little phone. And so I'd trail after him like, yep, nope, sell, bye. <laughs> and, uh, and that translated probably to what I do all this years later as a deal junkie today. That's so interesting. I, I find it fascinating to see, I think oftentimes with the things people do in adulthood, you can see oftentimes glimpses of it in their childhood. So it's always interesting to kind of go back in those stories. And, I, you know, I'm, I, there's always the question of nature versus nurture. And I think it's kind of the wrong question because mm. I think the obvious answer with everything is it's both, right? It's a combination. Yeah. People are always like, is that thing nature or is it nurture? And it's like, well, it's a combination, right? We have our, our natural wiring and wiring and personality and proclivities but then of course we're affected by our environment by our experiences by the things that we see by the things our parents and families instill in us and so on so it's uh it's interesting most entrepreneurs i know that came to light pretty early in their childhood they had some type of they had some type of hustle that they were doing in their childhood whether it was selling lemonade or trading cards or I don't know, selling their Pokemon or like me, I used to, um, I went to boarding school from the age of 11 in the UK and I actually was living in Saudi Arabia. So I used to do like import export 
<laughs> wow. between the two countries, right? So like that's sophisticated. It, well, it, it sounds it. It's not that sophisticated. It's just finding stuff that's like really cheap in Saudi and expensive in the UK. And then I would like take orders from my friends. I'd be like, okay, what do you want? It could be candy. It could be Timberland boots. It could be, um, it could be cigarettes. Uh, I probably shouldn't say that online, but it, whatever it is. And then it was like, okay, cool. Like all this stuff's super cheap in Saudi. I'll go buy it there and then come back. And you can still sell it for half the price it is in the UK and still make like a, a significant profit. And then once I started doing my music, of course, in my late teens, then of course I started selling my and promoting my albums and everything like that. And just going out on the street and selling CDs and everything hand to hand. So yeah, but I, I find with almost every entrepreneur I know, they, they definitely started early. That's interesting. That'd be a good thing to check. And, and I don't think it's, sometimes I think back to, is it a bias that I have? You know how you have, well, the path went this way. And so let me have confirmation bias that because this was my path, I was in fact, this type of human. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that's the case. I think uh, parents, at least mine, tend to be quite honest about all my shortcomings and, and positives. And they're very quick to say that that, that was probably you, one of you them. Did, you did sell their books. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> to their credit, I did. I did. You were breaking trade law early, though. You wait, know? wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> early. Um, so, so tell me, so you got into the, the corporate world. Did you go in, was that investment banking or... Was that the so first I started out in in asset management, um, and and right before that, probably similar to you, it seems like you've had multiple career progressions. And most successful people that I know do not have a linear path. They've done three or four really different things that have all converged as a stacked skill set to something that sort of perfectly lines to the the thing that they take off on. But it's this convergence that leads to them being able to take off. It's very rare, I think, for somebody to do something linear their entire life. And so prior to me doing uh, finance first at Vanguard, I was a journalist in human trafficking and oh. uh, drug smuggling along the US-Mexico border. So I graduated a year early from college and uh, I basically lived uh, along the border. If you've been to Juarez or El Paso, it's a really, really tough part of, of Mexico where they have all of these factories. They're called maquiladoras. And these factories mass produce mm, a lot of things we use in the U.S., a lot of construction things, blinds. Um, and they're filled with women workers, which is interesting. Like they fight less, they show up more for work. And so it's almost all young women of a certain age. But the fascinating part about Juarez is that it's called La Ciudad de Muerte, the, the city of death, because every single day, and I mean every day, there are bodies found of women mutilated in the desert in Juarez. It's this wild phenomenon that's happened for decades. And I, I actually haven't looked at the news lately. Hopefully they've cleaned it up, but I, I'm not so sure they have. Um, and so I went down there to write stories about it. And that was a fascinating time of my life, but one in which I realized man, I do not want to spend the rest of my life covering these tragedies because it turns you into a, a really jaded human. Yeah, that must be extraordinarily difficult. It's one of those things that I guess in a way you would have to become desensitized to, but that's also the last thing you kind of want as an empathetic human being. You don't want to be desensitized to those type of atrocities and that type of imagery. I think that's right. Every human, I believe, should go and see firsthand what 
real difficulty looks like and then have context to the difficulty we have in day-to-day modern society. And so when you go down there and I would have to pick out um, how many people actually were killed that day, how many females, because the, the remains are, I mean, to be gross, grotesque, but they're often mutilated. And so it's hard to, to identify. And so I would have to go down to the autopsy and I would actually determine how many people have been, had been killed. And that was for news reporting. And so after you've done that and you've seen the families, you know, identifying them or trying to, then when something goes wrong in your day to day, it really doesn't seem quite as difficult or drastic. Um, and so not that we want people to have sort of poverty tourism, but I do think getting your hands dirty and working in something where you can be on the ground and really see difficulty is important. And I'm sure you saw it in Saudi Arabia too. There's a real differential between Saudi Arabia and and the UK, some real positives, some negatives, but just a different type of living um, and less of a broad social safety net one way or the other. And so just seeing that I think can completely change your life. Yeah, absolutely. It, It provides perspective. I've said it on a gazillion podcasts that, you know, the two things I think so many individuals lack and that our modern Western society lack at this time are perspective and gratitude. And if you've been to different places and you've seen different things, just, you know, you can only see the world from where you're standing, right? So if you are, I don't know, if you were born and raised in San Diego and never, ever left San Diego you know, yeah, you can read about other places and you can talk to people and you can be intellectually curious, but that's just your default, right? That's the default and everything is now measured against that. But then if you go and you see and you experience different places and things and cultures and ways of being, then you just got all these different angles you can see things from. And with it comes gratitude, right? Comes gratitude. You're like, oh, wow. You see how bad things can get. You see the way that some people are living and the stuff that they're living through. And you get to a position like I'm very careful to all, I can't say I'm perfect with it. I can't say never, but almost never, I almost never complain about my life because Mm. it's ludicrous to me. It feels like slapping God in the face, right? If I think of all the people who have come before me, all the people around the world, all the things that people are listening to, sorry, living through, and I'm complaining about my life, I'm like, well, what on like, what am, what am I even complaining about? Right. Like I give myself a little slap, but I'm just like, come on, Zuby, what are you doing? It's so true. Well, you know, I think a lot of people, I sort of think about it like, um, most humans in modern society, at least in the U S and maybe I wouldn't even say most, but a lot of the most vocal humans in the U S have lived in sort of a lukewarm bathtub for most of their lives. They've never known extreme heat, like what boy, like what it would feel to go in boiling water. And they've never felt extreme cold, like what it feels to go and sit in an ice bath. And so without that context, you know, if the water just varies a little bit, then they think it's really tough or hard. But if they had the full spectrum of temperature, then this variance would feel like nothing. And so in my husband and my life, a lot of what we try to do, we live in a couple different places and we have very different friend groups, some that we agree with uh, intensely and some that we do not like uh, ideologically agree with. And that just allows for mental elasticity and this temperature variance. And so um, it's hard to do because you want to be right and you want to convince other people of your thought pattern. Um, but it also keeps me honest from the fact that I certainly do not know everything. And in fact, very few people do. 
Yeah, absolutely. Something I, I often say is that, you know, every single person in the world thinks that they're correct, right? <laughs> yes. Right. And every likes it, you know, yeah, and yeah. loves that feeling, you know? Yeah, everyone thinks that they're correct. And at the same time, there's no two individuals who absolutely agree with each other on every single thing. So, you know, and we all have to live together at the same time, unless we want to be like fighting and at war all the time. You've got to at least find the balance and the compromise where people can get along and not be constantly at each other's throat all the time, at least not at least not literally. Yeah, well, I mean, as a journalist, I think that's one of the best practices. You know, I remember as a journalist covering drug cartels and talking to some of the cartel leaders who were responsible for some of the mutilation and brutality, who were responsible for narco trafficking. Um, however, uh, I, in order to get an interview with a drug cartel member, if I came at them aggressively, uh, that I don't agree with anything that they've done, pushing back on, on everything that they stand for, I would never get the interview. And so you have to be in this sort of mindset where you can sit there and say, so you started as a young boy with nothing. You saw your friends and family killed around you. Your only option to get out was coming into a, a drug cartel. And so the members that you associated with, you became normalized to those behaviors until you became a member of them and then climbed up the ladder. And like I could see that young boy and the prog progression of him to why that person became a cartel member. And because of that, I could have a conversation with them. Now, do I agree with their actions? Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean that I can't have a conversation with them. And I think there are very few people um, across any sort of mentality that I couldn't have a discussion with, if only to understand wow, how did you come to this wild idea that I completely disagree with, but I'm curious as to how that could happen for a human. And so that, that curiosity, I hope it is something that if we're, you know, lucky enough to have children, we could pass on to them. That seems to be the key. Mm. Why do you think people are so afraid of those conversations? I mean, this is something I've noticed myself. I mean, at this point, I've done several hundred interviews. I've interviewed hundreds of people and I've been interviewed probably over, I'm sure, surely over a hundred times at this point. And something that I've found over the last few years is people criticize interviewers for interviewing people, yeah. right? So if even on this very podcast, right, I've had certain guests on my podcast where people are angry at me before, before even listening to the podcast, people are angry at me just for speaking to the person, or I get invited to go on a TV show or another podcast, do an interview with someone and maybe, you know, some people in my audience don't like that person. And then they're like, oh, no, you shouldn't speak to that person. It's almost like people have this mentality, almost like you, you catch a disease just from speaking to someone or you become like infected with everything or that you're co-signing every single thing they've ever said, done everything they're going to do in the future. And it's really silly and very immature. But I find that increasingly, I don't know, is it increasingly, maybe it's just that we're seeing it more. But I'm finding that people are, and it, it doesn't matter what, where people sit on these things, mm -hmm. but generally speaking, a lot of people are just afraid of those conversations even existing or happening. So I, let's play a game. I think there's two really interesting sides to this coin. So on one side where my head is, is that people don't like to have conversations with humans like this, because in my experience, most humans are difficult to hate up close. That when you get in a one-on-one -on -one conversation and somebody hates Andrew Tate, like they just hate him on the internet, 
But then they sit down and talk with him. They realize, oh, I kind of agree with that point. Yeah, I kind of agree with that point. That was really well said or eloquent, even if I don't agree with the underlying issue. And so, you know, he's just such a an example today because he's so polarizing for people on the internet on either side of the coin. But I think people inherently are scared that they might like the person. And I think also they're really scared that it might rub off on them. You know, are his ideas contagious? You know, which is such a funny thought. But and am I going to be associated poorly? More than anything, it's fear of the mob, right? If I interview X person, then everyone will say that I'm a sympathizer, or I am that type of person, or I get immediately classified, and my identity is not strong enough to stand up to other people's pressure. And so those are all the things I've heard you say on the internet. Um, and that I tend to believe is a reason why you should have conversations with lots of people you don't agree with. Maybe you could learn something. One thing I thought is interesting, though, did you ever hear about why Winston Churchill would never meet with Hitler? Uh, no. So it's a fascinating story. So back in the day, I can't remember who was the prime minister at the time, um, but the prime minister had met with Hitler multiple times and actually kind of liked the guy. And each time he met with him, he sort of dissuaded some of his views and he started to like him more and more. And this happened with multiple members of the cabinet um, and with multiple members of uh, UK leadership and, and people around the world. Um, no doubt the man was charismatic. Uh, you know, his ends obviously were horrific. Um, but Winston Churchill said, um, and I'm going to butcher his words because he was so eloquent, but he said, um, you know, I review actions. I don't speak to somebody's intention. And so his statement was that he would never meet with him because he didn't want to fall under his charismatic um, umbrella. And I just thought that was an interesting counterpoint. So my main point is I agree with you. I think we should have difficult conversations. And because we're smart enough to have cognitive dissonance, we could have over here too. Huh, I also understand why people don't want you to have them because they don't want them to have a platform regardless. And I think both can be right, except that most humans cannot handle nuance. Yeah, that that's interesting. Are there, um, with that said, are there any sort, are, you know, are there some people out there or is there something that would put someone beyond the pale where it's like, okay, I'm not even going to sit down and have a conversation with that person? Um, I know, I know I certainly have a line. Yeah. Um, What's yours? And is it, is it easy to articulate? I don't know how easy it is to articulate. The first thing is, and this is more of like a gut thing, is... Mm -hmm. Do I actually want to speak to this person? Yeah. For agreed. me, that's a big one, especially on my own podcast. I'm like, do I even want to talk to the person? Right. Because yeah. there can be someone who I, you know, wh whether I agree or I disagree or whatever it is, there are some people I'm just not, I'm not particularly enthused by having a conversation with. Yep. Um, I'm not, I'm not sort of drawn or intrigued by them. Um, and then I think, you know, there's probably, yeah, there's, there's a, a, a level of heinous behavior that I think someone could engage in where it's just, it, it's so far extreme and so deeply, horribly immoral where, you know, or if I were to do an interview, it would just have to be like a, a grilling, right? It wouldn't, yeah, be like exactly. a, it, would, it wouldn't be a cordial conversation like this. It would be more of an interrogation, but at least for the sake of my own podcast, like if, if I feel that much about someone, then I'm just not even going to have them on, right? But there aren't that many human beings that are, you know, so, so all around awful that uh, they'd fall into that category. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. If yeah. it's off air, 
I think I'll speak to just about anybody. I find yeah, it, I, I find these conversations fascinating, you yeah. know, except perhaps if I felt like it would be too heavy, you know, mm-hmm. I could imagine you could speak to some people who just have such darkness in them that sitting around with it and listening to it would be tough to shake off. And I've certainly felt that before. And in some of the interviews I have, you just see that, that, that darkness. Um, but for the most part, I find it fascinating. Uh, but that's probably why you and I do what we do is because we're always in search of more information, the truth, what is real. And in order to do that, you can never only hear the side of the story that you like. You have to hear the full spectrum. Mm. Do you still do journalism now? Or is that something that's just in the past? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I do opinionated journalism now. So we have a we have a newsletter called Contrarian Thinking, and I write. I would say probably like one and maybe two to two to to one to two of those a month, and we do four of them. And uh, but I don't do the typical journalism that I used to do, which was pick a subject, um, go and interview the people, go into a really deep dive on them. And there's parts of me that that miss that. I think the way that journalism is done today is, is really tough. Um, And I actually, actually exited journalism. I went to the Walter Cronkite school for journalism. So that was Walter Cronkite was a legend. However, he, he arguably many could say he became uh, the forefront of opinionated journalism because during the war in Vietnam, he was, he said on the air uh, and something to the tune of it. It was, it's a very famous line that was, um, and this is when the war was lost or, and now we have lost the war or something like that. And many say that that moment is when the Americans lost sort of their resolve to, um, to continue mm-hmm. one way or the other. And that was, I believe right after the Tet offensive. And so um, it's interesting because he was known as being unopinionated and yet did one of the major turn- turning points in opinionated journalism. Um, but I am glad that I left the industry overall because I wouldn't be able to do what journalists do today, which is choose a side. Um, I think the truth is so much more interesting. Yeah. And you wouldn't be able to lie like them either. No, no. You know, my, my dad has a great line, which is um, tell the truth. It's so much easier to remember. And I have a terrible memory. So if I was lying all the time on the internet, as much as I am, you'd just be able to, you'd be able to triangulate it in about 30 seconds. And so I don't know how they keep their stories straight sometimes these days. Uh, Yeah. The answer is that they don't. I mean, they contradict (laughs) themselves. They contradict themselves all the time. And I love it because you have the internet. So you can like, you you can see the previous ones and you're just like, wait, hang on. How are these things all sticking together? Cody, you've mentioned your dad quite a few times. Tell me about your dad because I can tell he's a very important person in your life. Yeah, he's great. I, you know, I know you have a lot of you know young men that listen to what you do, and I think it's really cool. Sort of the the familial val- values. I know you're at your parents' house now that you seem to speak about and how important that is. I think the numbers back it up. My dad was just an incredible father. Um, you know, he raised both my brother and I with my mother to just um, really respect the family. It was always you know blood first. Um, that we could do just about anything we wanted to do if we were willing to put in a massive amount of hard work to back it up. Um, and to first and foremost, be good humans. You know, we have this thing at Contrarian Thinking called our Contrarian Creed, and it's 13 values because, you know, I don't believe in luck. And the 13 values, the, the first two, the first one is um, 
those who say that it's impossible should get out of the way of those who are doing it. And that was something for my father. And the second was be a great human, even when it hurts. And those two things, I think, try to drive our business. And don't get me wrong. I've failed at it so many times, but he's a self-made man from an immigrant family who came from nothing, worked in a slaughterhouse, you know, to, to get by at one point, was a carpenter, built a couple of businesses, sold some businesses, um, and then made it so that, you know, we got to live a very nice middle-class life in, in the U.S. And I got to take a ton of risk as I got older. And so I have a lot of respect for for him and for parents in general who really pour into their, their children. It's a thankless job. That's awesome. So you worked in the corporate world for 12 years. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Just about, I think. Okay. So you work for the companies that own every other company, basically Vanguard, Straight <laughs> yeah. State Street. Like... <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, yes. What was that actually like? Um, you know, what's interesting is I think co companies have personalities. So Vanguard, its personality was, in my opinion, hyper socialist. So it was, um, you know, it's a, um, it's actually a not for profit model in the way that they own it. It's basically a mutual holding company. And the company was so fascinating. You know, for instance, uh, all the managers at the company had these categorizations that were so bizarre. Uh, they would wear sort of Timexes, like cheaper watches to show that they were frugal and that's what they would show the team. And then if you saw them on the weekend, they'd have like a Rolex or something on. <laughs> and, then, and then they would drive like a Buick in there because the founder of the company, a famous man by the name of John Bogle, uh, he used to drive kind of a beat up car similar to Warren Buffett. So they'd drive their beat up car into work and on the weekend out would come the Beamer or the Mercedes-Benz. And um, and so it was a culture that just didn't fit me. It's not a bad culture. It just wasn't for me. And so um, it was one in which everybody kind of stair steps together. And I've always believed in um, really beneficial competition and a meritocracy. And so I left Vanguard and went to Goldman. So complete opposite ends of the spectrum. We've got massive capitalism, meritocracy, Goldman, and then we've got kind of socialistic, um, soft around the edges, Vanguard. And so it was interesting to see both of them. Goldman fit me a little better, but was brutal. That was during the financial crisis. So, you know, my own grandmother called me asking me why I worked for the giant succubus squid. No, giant vampire squid, which was the Rolling Stone line about <laughs> Goldman Sachs at the time. I was like, Grandma, I'm 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 22. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Nobody listens to me. I'm, I'm at the bottom of the food chain. Um, but that one was fascinating, although watching 20% of the work staff get fired during the crisis mm -hmm. and security coming down the trading floor. We have open desks um, and putting a bunch of boxes on individual desks and they got to pack up their stuff and all their computers shut off. And then they would walk them out in suits. That was a, that was a sad and scary thing to watch, especially for the people who had given their lives to that place. There were a few sort of humans that just, they bled Goldman Sachs. And, and a lot of them were on the chopping block and watching that happen, I think changed my opinion forever on big corporations and the safety of a nine to five, um, which I no longer believe in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember that time period. So I'm assuming you're talking 2008, 2009. Yep. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Cause, um, I graduated in 2007 
and I worked in the corporate world from 2008 to 2011. Um, I wasn't a, I, w I never got into investment banking, but I was a management consultant. But a lot of my friends out of Oxford University went straight into investment banking. I had friends at Lehman Brothers. I had yeah. friends at Goldman Sachs, at Citigroup, all of them. I remember the day that Lehman Brothers went bust and Me too. had to fire every single employee. Um, and yeah, so I, I was never, I was not in those environments, but I very much remember that time period. And I think I had the same, even though I wasn't, I wasn't in those particular offices. Even, I mean, I was already doing my music stuff on the side. I'd already been doing that for a few years and I knew like, okay, I'm not going to stay in the corporate wor world for decades. I already knew that, but I had the exact same. And I still maintain that position. You just said about I don't believe that these jobs are safe and secure in the way that people say they are. In fact, I think having just one job and one source of income is the most risky thing. It might be the most normal thing, but I would argue it's far more risky than being more diversified and owning and running your own stuff. Like people look at what I do and they get confused by it because they're like, wait, you know, it's funny because people do the or thing. They're like, wait, are you a, I thought you were a rapper or, or are you a rapper or an author or a podcaster or like, yep. I'm like, it's and not or <laughs> like, why, why do I, why can I only do one thing? Why can't I be a rapper and run a podcast and make books and do speeches and do, uh, do acting, whatever I want. Like, and I think that's uh, the time we're living in now. I think we're living in a time where, um, yeah, the age of hyper-specialization in that sort of old school sense, it's not going to complete, it's not going to go away, right? We're always going to need those specialists. But I think with the younger generations coming up, they're going to more quickly realize, oh, actually, I can do a whole bunch of different things and I can try my hand at all these other things. I don't need to just specialize from the age of 20 and spend the next 50 years doing that one thing. I think you're exactly right. You know, I have some friends who are really big on focus. Just do one thing, one thing. And and I think that is great for the beginning. Focus in the beginning to become at least a level one expert on something is really helpful. You know, if you are 20 years old and you're doing 72 activities, you're probably doing none of them very well. That is a quite a fair point. But as you progress in your career, you stack different skills. And why couldn't you also stack different income streams? I think that's a fallacy that you have to focus on one thing. And in fact, it's really dangerous. And most people say, well, if you don't focus on one thing, you'll never become a billionaire. Let's look at the math on billionaires. Your likelihood of becoming a billionaire is less than both getting bitten by a shark and struck by lightning. So unless you think that you are going to hit both lightning and a shark attack, then you having a singular focus to one day potentially become a billionaire is numerically just not likely. And because of that, what is much more likely actually is for you to go bankrupt, for you to uh, go on unemployment. That is actually 10x more likely. And so with that number in my head, I sort of think, okay, if I just look at the math, if I ignore all the numbers and all the, I'm sorry, if I ignore all the narrative of what everybody's saying, and I just look at the math, the math tells me that the most likely outcome is I uh, lose my job, I go bankrupt, or I uh, end up on, on welfare or unemployment. Because in fact, only one out of 10 people, at least in the US, dies wealthy. 
That means independently, financially free to a tune that they can cover all of their bills, do not have to work. And so if that's the real number, then what do I want to, one in 10. If that's the real number, then I just want to make sure I have multiple income streams to protect from becoming the majority. And I don't think enough people do that. We spend too much time focusing on becoming outliers and we forget that outliers are that for a reason. Also, it's a shitty story to tell. It's much funner to say, here's how I made it. My first hundred million dollars and you can too. Here's how I made my first million dollars and you can too. Okay, maybe, but maybe we should just try to get people out of debt first and we should try to get people stabilized and we should try to get people a few income streams and understanding how to better negotiate their salary. Let's like start there. Yeah, I hear that. But you are an outlier, Cody. I was going to say it before the podcast, but I'll say it on here. Congratulations on your one million Instagram followers. Oh, thank I've, uh, you. I've I've watched the I've watched the come up. I think I've been follow, I think I've been following you for about a year. I, I love it. Thank you. And I think you had under a hundred thousand. Did you have under? Wait, am I getting this right? Did yeah, you, it's you, been you, fast. You, you had under a hundred thousand beginning of last year, right? I think that sounds right. Yeah, somewhere between yeah. eighteen months and in 12 months, probably we've, we've okay. paid more attention to social. Yeah. 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 So congratulations on that. That's a, that's actually a huge Thank milestone. You. So, um, Thank you. that is, you know, you, you talk a lot about, you know, business entrepreneurship, money management, all that kind of stuff. And you said something earlier before about, you know, people aspiring to be aspiring to be billionaires. It's so funny. I was just thinking about this yesterday. Um, and I was thinking, I was actually thinking about the whole billionaire thing. And I was, I was wondering, I, I, I flip flop between different modes sometimes. Uh-huh. I, I have modes where I'm like, like, is I, like, if you become a billionaire kind of like as a byproduct of something, you know, just creating something incredible that the whole world needs and whatever. I think that's one thing. I, the, the question I had in my brain was like, is it a reasonable and sort of sane goal to become a billionaire because when you think of it like just how much money that is like a thousand million dollars plus it's like if say say you have 200 million dollars an extra 800 million what does it do like there's a point where it doesn't it just doesn't matter anymore i'd say if someone is like let me say a hundred million maybe even like like if you get whether you have a hundred million you have 300 million or you have 800 million i'm like doesn't matter. You know, when, when the billionaires are like fighting and it's like, oh, well, you know, who has more Zuckerberg or Musk or, or business? It's like, who, oh, this guy's got 180 billion, 100, 220. Billion. I'm like, dude, it, it just, it doesn't even matter at that point. I'm just like, well, at that point, I don't know. I'm just like, there's a, there's a point of income and wealth and whatever that, th- that I think it ab- absolutely makes sense to aspire towards and seek after and sort of chase to some degree. Um, not, you know, meaning you sacrifice everything else for it, but then past a level, it's just, it, it's, I feel the same thing. Like I'm into bodybuilding. I'm into training. I know you're into training as well. Right. And it's the same in like the say, take bodybuilding specifically. Right. There's a point of like jackness and ripness and muscularity and where you're just like, what do you, why, what do you do it? Like, unless you're, unless you're competing and you're trying to be Mr. Olympia. Our podcast today is sponsored by the wellness company. Did you know that nearly 90% of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are produced overseas? That's an alarming statistic. If you don't have an emergency kit on hand, it's time to get prepared. The Wellness Company's medical emergency kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications that every single American should keep in stock. 
It comes with a 22-page instruction guide on safe medical use for everything from snake bites to COVID to bioterror events. Another stellar product from the wellness company is Spike Support. Whether you got vaxxed or not, the virus is still among us in some capacity, as well as the related spike protein. Spike protein can cause brain fog, tissue damage, blood clots, and more. Spike Support is a detoxification powerhouse that aims to strengthen the body's natural immunity and flush out spike protein, so you can get back to that pre-COVID feeling. Get both of these products by going to twc.health forward slash Zuby and get 15% off with the discount code Zuby. That's twc.health forward slash Zuby and use discount code Zuby to get 15% off. Disclosure, the medical emergency kit is only available to U.S. residents. There's like just this point of diminishing returns where I'm just like, it's kind of like, what's the point? Because now you're just sacrificing all these other good things, oftentimes your own health to like eke out an extra 800 grams of muscle mass or something. And I'm just like, what's the point, bro? Like, just chill. Totally. Well, there's actually, there's actually a, there's a great study that I posted on Twitter that I got to find and send to you, but it shows, it talks about, um, sexual intimacy and, uh, as it correlates to muscle mass and specifically, I think it's how much you can squat or bench one of the two. And as you can show, it basically says at a certain point, the more that you uh, bench or squat, the more sexual activity you'll have. So that's great. Except it goes to this outliers where people who can bench, I don't know, let's say something crazy, 800 pounds. I don't know what a real number is there. And it turns out at that level, nobody's having sex. And so what I thought was interesting <laughs> is seems that the data proves in this one isolated study that, uh, yeah, those outliers can't have a diminishing return on other items. And then to your point, Another study that I found that was interesting was remember how they, there was this narrative back in the day that um, if you earned anything over $100,000, there was no increase in happiness. Do you remember hearing that study? Yeah, I do. Circulated I think it was, everywhere. I want to say it was like 72,000 or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you might be right. Yeah. So let's say somewhere between 72,000 and $100,000, um, no increase in, in happiness. And that never sat well with me because I've felt the difference between making 30,000 to 70,000 to 100 to 200 to 500K. And I was like, I was a lot happier at 200 to 500K. <laughs> that was 72 million. So like, I don't, I don't know if I feel this. And so then I remember one time I just got curious and started looking it up and somebody did a follow-up study. It might even be as recent as a year or two. And they basically said, whoops, the thing is that study was hyper flawed and the number is closer to 500,000. So once you're earning about mm. 500,000, the law of diminishing return starts to set in, in terms of uh, each additional do dollar earned. And so I'll find the study and get it to you too. But that seems real to me. My difference from going from 500K to a million to 10 million, like really the only material difference. I love how you casually, in... I love those casual numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Cody's like, well, obviously, I mean, like. <laughs> yeah, young Cody would not believe that. My first job. I made 36k out of high, out of college and I thought I was so rich That's like I could bad. barely yeah I thought I was crushing it but I can definitely say that the you know from additional money it, like it's it gets hard for me to spend like how are you going to spend that much cash unless you're building a business that's why i keep building businesses pouring it all back into the profits because that's the fun game and that's why i think that people want to be billionaires it's not really that they want more stuff i think it is that they want more power 
And that's mm. the part that's addicting and money is power. I have this friend actually who I won't say the name, but he worked for some of the three billionaires in their family offices, very well-known tech billionaires of companies that we would know. And he worked for three of them. And I remember one time he was talking to my husband and he said, uh, you know, you guys are doing well. I'm excited for you. I wish you not one penny more than $199 million. We were like, why? And he's like, because right at $199 million, people start going nuts and they get completely disconnected <laughs> from reality. And I could see that because at some point, why money that can... number? I don't know. Well, that's, a, that's, like... a very, that's a very specific number. It is. I don't know. He just said that he had kind of seen, he was with a few of them as they were doing their climb and right about at that number, um, he's like, you can buy your way out of a lot of things. And I think you get disconnected from reality. Mm. And so um, I don't know, I am happy to try out his theory. Um, and so I will, <laughs> I will do one for the team if I can get there. You'll find, you'll find out and, and report back. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I mean, I, I didn't know, I didn't know and had no association to, to any billionaires until the last couple of years. And now I think I've met slash no for four or five, um, <laughs> including some very well-known ones. And um, yeah, I don't know, like, first of all, like they're the ones I know are actually generally pretty frugal. Like they, they, they live more chilled out lives. Like it's, their wealth is less obvious than many of the multimillionaires I know to yeah. begin with. And it just seems like, I guess at that point, I mean, even if you look at a lot of prominent billionaires, like they're just, there's no flashiness at all. You know, I'm sure their houses are nice, but like, I, I think at that point, it's just, it's just kind of whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's a different type of show. So yeah. I, I doubt, you know, as at least when I was coming up, like in Latino culture, it's like, you know, labels, like wearing stuff when you don't have a lot of money was sort of the way that you kind of said that you had money or tried yeah. to show that you had money. Um, but and then I think it actually becomes the opposite. Then as you get, you know, quite a lot of money, you don't want anybody else's labels on you. And you start to sort of pull away. You might be wearing really expensive clothes, but you're not going to probably have the labels demonstrated everywhere. Um, and so the billionaires that I've met or have come to know are just humans like the rest of us. There's, you know, really not that yeah. much difference. But usually they do have some sort of um, ability in the way that they speak or the way that they think that I do. I haven't met any one of them that I'm thought, God, this guy's a billionaire. How'd he figure that out? Almost every one of them I've said, oh, wow, yeah. there is some component here that is just a level or 17 above me. Yes. And it's cool to learn from. Yeah. I was actually thinking just about the uh, that study you mentioned. And I do also wonder, it's like, I wonder how they even control for variables in that kind of thing. Right. Because if someone goes from earning, let's say, 50K to 200K, um, there's going to be a lot of things that have changed and will change in their lives beyond just their income in most cases. Like if I if I look at my myself, um, like going from, you know, I'm now making you know many, many, many times more than I used to. Say, you know, I used to sell my CD when I was selling my CDs on the street and I was, you know, just purely doing my music and, you know, I mean, making like 30, 30, probably 30 to $35,000 or so a year, just kind of like doing the grind. Like I was just grinding all the time. It was just grind, 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 grind. Like I wasn't, 
it, it was cool. Like it was fun and I'm glad I had all that experience, but I didn't, I had far less freedom and liberty and ability to like do even the creativity was limited, right? I couldn't do as many fun and creative projects because it's like, all right, I need to like keep on grinding on this one thing. So yeah. I do wonder how they adjust for all those variables or I don't know, say somebody gets, somebody gets married or they become a parent or they go through like, there's all these other changes that are going to be happening over the course of those years. So it makes me kind of curious as to how they even, it's not like you can keep people in a lab or something and you just tweak a single variable. So I, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll look yeah. into the study and see see the methodology. No, I think that would be frowned upon. Yeah, we got a lot of them go out <laughs> into the world, but um, but uh, yeah, I you know I think uh, there's another study to go super meta, and I wish I remembered the name. That basically recently categorized that most studies done like this, non double blind uh, controlled studies, have huge huge actual failure rates and variance. So um, so who knows? Maybe the real number is uh, $10 million and only then will we actually be happy. But yeah. I imagine, you know, a lot of what we've talked about and I've heard you talk about before is that, you know, if you're not happy at 100K and you're not happy at 500K and you're not happy at a million, mm -hmm. like you're probably not going to be happy at five or 10. And so money certainly is not a... A, a happiness Xanax for the rest of your life. That's for sure. Mm, I think quite the opposite for a lot of people, especially if it's accompanied by fame, because yeah. I think that fame and money are amplifiers. So that's if someone a is a right, if someone is earning 30 K and they've got a little bit, they're a little bit of an addict, <laughs> whether it's smoking, it's drink, it's drugs, it's women, it's gambling, whatever it is. If you give them 300K or 3 million, like what do you think they're gonna do with it? Like look at how many musicians and actors and celebrities and whatever, right? They're, they don't have their stuff together to begin with and then they just come across huge amounts of money and they go completely bonkers. So I think you need to be very solidly grounded to begin with and if you have that and then you become wealthy, it's all good, right? You just, if, you're, if you were already a bit generous, you become massively generous. If you were I already couldn't agree like, more. yeah, I think like whatever, if you were a little bit of a scumbag, you become a massive scumbag, right? If you were a little bit power hungry, you become massively power hungry and you just want to like oppress other people and whatever it is. So I think that these things are just like volume control. They're just amplifiers. And, um, you know, I, I feel the same with power in general, actually, because I, I, I see this a lot. People ask questions about, you know, politicians and whether they're democratically elected or they're dictators or they're kings or they're queens or whatever, all throughout history, I think it's very easy to look at them and just go, oh, you know, this person was just a, an awful, terrible human being. And I'm like, I think there's a, sadly, there are a lot of awful and terrible human beings out there, but most of them are not very powerful. So if someone, is, if, if someone is terrible, but they have no power, no status, no money, whatever, the damage they can do is quite limited right? They can, they can do damage, but it's quite limited. If you took someone like that and then you're like, Hey, you know what? Go nuts. Right. That's when you get, I don't know, like, have you heard like the stories of Saddam Hussein's sons? Oh like, no. And Kusei Hussein. Like they, like they were worse than their father. Like just imagine like your father, your dad is Saddam Hussein. You basically have infinite money, infinite power. You can have anyone jailed, anyone executed. Any... These guys were just like, there's just horror stories about these guys. They would just run through the city, run through the country, just doing literally whatever they wanted, like with no, no moral checks, no legal checks, no ethics, just no boundaries at all. 
and like to give those that someone like that unbridled power is just is just crazy. Oh, I couldn't. Yeah. You know, I've actually found that a lot with wealthy children um, who who grew up with massive wealth. I think it takes a lot of work as a parent to temper um, the fact that a child is actually raised with a lot of privilege. And it's funny because people these days think, oh, you know, you were given so much privilege. And so because of that, uh, you you had a hand up. And th there is some truth to that. But there's actually a huge downside to privilege. You know, I think about it when I went to high school, my parents didn't have a ton of cash. And so, you know, when I got my first car, it was, you know, it was an older car and I was thrilled with it, but it wasn't that nice. And then a lot of other people in my in my high school were given really nice cars. We, we went to a high school in a nice neighborhood where we didn't have the nicest house, but the the high school in general was great. And so, you know, they'd come up in there with their BMW and their Benz and whatever. And I thought the thing is, when we graduate, we will all have the same skill set by and large, and we'll start at the same level. And when I graduate with a $36,000 a year job, I'm going to be able to, you know, maintain my car and maybe get a little nicer one next year. But those kids will not be able to beat the thing that was given to them with the work that they could do by themselves. Mm. And I think that's actually a tragedy. And so they have to work themselves into something despite already being having having been given all of it and and that is i think that's why most generational wealth isn't kept so we see it in small business land all the time i own all these small businesses and i do a lot of work with businesses that are family owned and so we buy them and they say that the first generation is for making money the second generation is for keeping the money made and the third generation is for losing the money made and that that happens again and again and again. And because of that also, I think it in this day and age allows for a recycling of new humans into the upper echelons of wealth, because it turns out it's actually really hard to transfer from one generation to another. Yeah, that's interesting. I think something that people don't know is that the the sort of top percent of wealth or income earners is constantly it's constantly changing. Right. People think it's like, you know, the the one percent or ten percent and those people just sit up there and they stay on top of there forever. And it's like, actually, that's not the reality. People are moving. People are moving up and down constantly. And actually, I, I believe that the I don't know the percentage, but I believe the ma vast majority of let me not say vast majority, a significant majority of millionaires in the USA are self-made, I believe. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's uh, I think it's a relatively small percent that just inherited the wealth. Um, That's right. Yeah. So That's yeah, right. people can, people can absolutely build wealth. I think people have this idea of, Oh, there's just this, there's just this millionaire class that's just there and they just kind of sit there twiddling their thumbs and, you know, laughing around the monopoly board. And then you just kind of have all the plebs down there who, you know, can't move up and that's not the reality of it. No, I, I think at the most upper echelon. So at the highest, highest elites, when you have such massive wealth and relatively good shepherding of it in the form of trusts, et cetera, those people can stay for generations as evidenced by the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds. But if you think about it, I mean, even Walmart and Walmart is a list of the, the richest people in the world, including their family tree. You know, that business hasn't been around all that long. And so um, there is a ton of movement. And, you know, I see it all the time because I have these friends, you know, I have a friend, he talks about it publicly. His name's Aaron Amuchastegui. And he, uh, during 
right prior to the previous financial crash, the real estate crash in the U.S. in 2008 and um, he was worth about $25 million. And he was he was cruising. He was making $5 million bucks a year, um, came from nothing. And that crisis hit and it bankrupted him. So he went down from $25 million in net worth to negative net worth. And then it you know took him probably until maybe just a year ago. So whatever that is, you know, uh, a decade plus to get back to that $20 million amount. And so I think people don't realize how often being in business means massive, massive uh, risk and trying to claw, claw, crawl, claw your way back to the top. Mm. I think people also forget that net worth doesn't mean like liquid liquid cash that you've just got under your mattress or in a bank or something. This can be tied up in tied up in businesses, tied up in stocks, assets, real estate, whatever it is. So if there is a massive crash and decline, then someone's net worth can go from very impressive to uh, very mediocre pretty quickly, depending on how their funds are allocated. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm probably the, one of the lowest paying people at my company right now, contrarian <laughs> thinking. You know, I, I pay out the team highly and I take what I need to from a tax perspective. Um, but you know, we're putting all the money into building the business. And mm -hmm. that's usually what happens, which is why I think it's so funny when, when you see the regulators want to apply taxes on net worth. I always like to think about what are the second and third order effects of any decision made. And if we could get more regulators to think about, if I do this, if I touch this domino, what other dominoes fall? They don't do that. But if we no. could get them to do that, then then we would actually be able to see the ripples of what would happen from their actions. And the net worth tax is a hysterical one for me because all that it would do is trigger a massive sell-off in assets and a movement of assets to other places. Then it would probably trigger a recession. But they're so unwilling to look at the dominoes and only interested in sound bites. And if the sound bite is better than the dominoes that are going to fall, then largely they seem to want to play the game. Yeah. Well, one of the biggest problems with politics and bureaucracy in general is that the people who are in these positions and make these decisions in the vast majority of cases, they are politicians and bureaucrats. They're not business owners. They're not entrepreneurs. They're not. Look, the, the truth, Cody, is that the best people who could lead any state, city, country, nation, whatever it is, are people who are successful in other realms and do not want to do it. Yeah, that's the reality. That's, I, I've, that's I've said before that every single, I'm not even trying to get hyper-political on this podcast, every single American friend I have would be a better president than the current one. Every <laughs> single. Take, pick, pick one of my American friends at random. <laughs> Take any any of my American. It's I'm dead serious. I'm, I'm just like just any of my American friends, right? Any yeah. of them, like just you, 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 you'd be president. <laughs> like it, it's crazy, and and you know it's just weird that you look at how these things go, and you're looking at the options available. And I, I look at the USA in particular. I mean, UK is not great, but I look at the US and I'm like, there's 340 million people. How are these the options? How are these the two or three options that are there? And I'm thinking like, I know so many hyper-competent, successful, kind-hearted, moral, decent, good people. And I'm like, just take one of them, like go through the phone book. Like just, it's you incredible. do it, Cody. Cody, run, oh, please. Like. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's the same with you. You know, I think 
talk about, I don't know, there's not a salary or like a carrot you could dangle in front of me to want to run for political office in this environment. I will happily donate to causes, but it seems like such a thankless endeavor. And that's why it's, it's a tale of two cities. You know, on one hand, when I see a, we just got a new mayor in Austin, who's actually awesome. Because I think actually most politics matters locally and humans just don't play at the local level. Like we should, we should care about our local community a lot more. Um, but he, he's willing to do the work and his, it's his second run doing it. And he's like, I don't know, he's been a politician for 60 years, but also a businessman mm-hmm. at the same time. And, uh, and I remember chatting with him and I was like, Kirk, like, you're good. Like you got grandkids, your wife's great. You've already done this once. Like you're not on social media. What are you doing, man? Like, why do you want to do this? And he's like, I just can't watch this happen in the city anymore. So I'm going to do it and I'm going to get out this term. And I hope that in the future, like people listening here, I think, was it Jordan Peterson that says, you know, before you go save the world, you clean up your closet, right? And before you, before you want to go run for political office, why don't you try to get like financially stable enough to do that and run a little business so you could understand, hey, here's how I run a budget and a balance sheet in a business that I, where I have skin in the game. Now I kind of could figure out how to do it at a smaller level and then bigger level politically. So I think that's correct. I think the people listening, if you've run businesses and you have your eye on the political game, maybe try to, to start in business and then move to running the budget for humanity. I'd like to, I'd like to be part of the, um, you know, everybody has to have run something previously before they go do this, this game of politics. It would definitely be wise. Uh, Cody, I want to, ha- I want you to give some game to, uh, to listeners here. I have listeners, listeners of all ages all around the world. Yep. And obviously you've built multiple successful businesses and bought them and improved them. You've, you know, you're rising on social media, reaching all people, inspiring all these people for someone who's just listening and they're, I don't know, they're in their quote unquote normal job and they're feeling a little disgruntled. They want to do something different. They want to make more money. They want to save more money. They want to, they want to get involved, but all of this stuff is kind of, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, she's talking about going from 10 million to 500 million. Like, I'm just trying to get to hundred K I'm trying to get to, you know, what, whatever it is. Um, what is, what are some steps that the, the average person can take to go from, not from, you know, 10 to a hundred, but if they're at, they're at a two, they're at a three and they're trying to get to, you know, a seven, eight, 10, um, yeah. financially and career wise, what are, what are some things that you think are practical for them? I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I want a really good, maybe one or two path answer to people when they ask, how do I make my first 100K? Because the truth is your first 100K is going to be a lot like your first million. Your first million will not be so much like your first 10 million. That's a different game. But from zero to 100, pretty similar to to 100 to a million. And the first 100K, here's the path I took that I think is really easy to follow. The path goes like this. First, you find out what skills do you have that can get you the highest paid job possible? What skills do you have to get the highest job paid part possible? Because the best way to earn upfront is on somebody else's dime. So you can learn on somebody else's dime. Then the second thing that I would do is I would go and apply for a ton of those jobs and try to take the highest offers that you could. 
Then you get in that job. And while you're there, you try to negotiate or renegotiate your salary on a quarterly basis so that it's incentive aligned. If I do X, I make Y. If I bring in X amount of money, I make X amount of money on top of it. You do not want to be in a job where you don't understand how you're paid, where somebody else gets to obfuscate that from you. There's no transparency. Then the next thing that I would do is while I was doing that, I would want to learn everything possible about this skill set that I have, this industry that I'm in, so that I can do one of two things. I can either go start my own business within it, or I can do consulting on the side to augment my income. And after I had done those, let's say, five or six things, the last step, the very last step is I start to take my earnings because now there's more of them and I put it into investments and I start to invest really slowly in the things that I think that I have an unfair advantage in. And investing is last, by the way. Lots of people want investing to be first, but unless you're rich, you shouldn't make investing first. You should make earning first. And while you're doing all of this, I think what's really important, so these are the tactical steps. Here's here's the physical or touchy-feely steps. And those are, you have to cancel all of your subscriptions to every streaming service. You've got to cut out the friends that don't actually want to go at the speed you want to go. You've got to get accountability partners, one or two, who want to get to 100K just as fast as you do and hang out with them. You have to do the things you talk about, which is, Really hard to get rich if you're unhealthy and if you got no energy. So you got to get your ass up and into the gym or on walks or on runs or whatever that case may be. And then lastly, it's an hours game. That first 100K has a huge correlation to the number of hours worked as long as you're continuing to up-level your pay. So you get into the office before other people and you get out of the other out of the office after other people. And there is no other way and there never was. So anybody who tells you that you can do it fast with no work, investing in XYZ scheme is full of it. And it's just a mixture of smarter games, harder work, and continuing to ask for more. That's very powerful and that's very practical. And I hope that that helps someone out there. Make sure you send Cody a DM and let her know when you make your first 100K. I would um, love that. I want to yeah. ask you really quick, because I've been obsessing sure. about that question. What do you okay. think? Is there, what what are the steps in your mind to get to that first 100K? Um, so for me, I would say, I, I'm not the best person to ask on this because I'm, I, I view so many things with like a more of a creators, with a creator's lens rather than someone who's not creative or entrepreneurial at all. But okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the answer for someone who is somewhat creative and entrepreneurial. And you don't have to be, I don't mean you have to be like a professional musician or a you know, dancer or something. You just need to have like a little fiber of that in your being. I say find the intersection between something you're really good at, um, something you enjoy, or interested in and something that people need need or want and then create a product or a service that serves those people something that they need or they want and promote it and push it out there and sell it to them if you make something that is that costs $50 if you write an ebook or you create a course 
or you make anything, you make something that costs $50 and you can sell 2000 of them, then you've made a hundred thousand dollars. If you write an ebook and your ebook costs $25, it's, it could be about health. It could be about wealth. It could be about happiness. It could be about relationships, anything that's going to help people, uh, whatever it is, then if you can sell 4,000 of those per year, you're making a hundred thousand. So that's how I tend to think of it. Alternatively, you can do the math in different ways. If you are, uh, if you've got something you can coach, something you can consult people on, and you can charge people a thousand dollars. Say you've got something. Okay, you can charge. You're you've you've you're really good at X. You've mastered this thing, and there's people out there who are willing to pay a thousand dollars for whatever it is. Hey, if you can sell a hundred of those coaching sessions, or a hundred of those consultations, or a hundred of whatever it is, that's a hundred thousand dollars. So that's how I tend to think about the math. I tend to think about it from a product or a service perspective, and then just doing the quick math because. The thing that people get freaked out by is if you think of, say, $100,000 or a million dollars or whatever, and you think of it in terms of people tend to think in terms of their like hour, hourly sort of wage rate. So they often oftentimes are thinking if I tell someone, hey, you know, if you tell the average person, you know what, you can make $1,000 in one day. Often people often don't think that's possible because they're like, wait, I only work. Let's say I work 10 hours a day. That would mean that. I need to be earning like a hundred dollars per hour. Like how, what, what job am I doing? That's going to pay me a hundred dollars an hour. But then if I tell them, oh no, like you just need to sell 50 things for $20 each or 20 things for $50 each. And you can do that in a day. You know, do you think there's something that's cost $50 that you could sell 20 of in a day and it gets people's gears turning and they're like, yeah, probably even if it's, it doesn't even need to be something exciting, right? It could be washing people's windows. It could be mowing people's lawns, like whatever it is, it it might not be fancy, but when you think of it that way, people are like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You can make a thousand dollars in a day. And if you could do that every day, oh, wow, you're making over 300 K a year. Right. So that's the way that I tend to think of it. And that's also how I personally did it myself. Um, Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That that's, that's how I did it myself is just thinking, okay, what can I do? What do I have that I can offer to people that they need and they value? And everyone has some skills in there. And for anyone thinking you don't, if you literally can speak English, do you know how there's, you know, there's billions of people in this world who want to learn English. You can teach people like their skills that people have that they don't even realize that they have because they're so used to it and they're using it all the time and they completely take for granted. If you're somebody who's in good shape, and you understand nutrition and you understand training, there are billions of people in this world who want to get in better shape. And people, if you can help people get in better shape, they will pay you. Um, I totally agree. Yeah, Yeah, I totally agree. The the caveat I would add there is I think a lot of people end up wanting to go the passive way first. So they want to start with a course. And what I'd say is the best way to do it is you actually start with your time. It doesn't feel that good. Like, you know, you could sell a course on, on weightlifting to your big audience. And I think maybe have or have a book on that subject. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And so you could do it because you have a big audience and you've put in the work. But in the beginning, where I always get annoyed is I'm like, guys, because I live in Austin, which is like the capital of Life Coach USA. And, you know, <laughs> they they want to sell, you know, they want to sell their $50 course. They want to focus on passive reoccurring revenue. And it's like, you haven't put in the work yet. That's the real truth. So before you go to sell your fitness course, go and train people, like put in that 
work up front. And especially because it's actually really hard to sell 2000 people something. It's not that hard to sell 20 people something. So can you sell 20 people something that's 500 or a thousand dollars? And that might be that you're going to train them, you know, at a hundred dollars an hour, multiple times per week for a month. That's a thousand dollars really easily. And then you do that a number of times until you can increase your prices and then layer those more passive things on top of it. But where I see a lot of people, they waffle around in Austin is they're like, well, I have this course and it's, you know, $49 a month. And I'm like, well, you're, you're either not spending enough on getting big on social media, or you don't have the skills where enough people want to sign up for that. So instead, what do you have? You have your time, spend your time to get a higher ROI on money. And then you can play the 2.0 game, which is the game we play, which is, we can sell a lot of people something really cheap because we've built mm. a really big audience. But most people want to skip that step for some reason. Yeah. Well, if you don't have the money, invest time. If you don't have the time, invest money. Yep. And I, the thing is too, it's always paid off for me. All the times that I did the free work, the hard work, the dirty work, the hands-on work early on in my career, especially, um, it led to huge dividends. And so I think... People these days want ChatGTP to do their writing and Google to do their searching and Amazon to do their shopping. And they don't realize that they're letting go of some of the skills that they need to keep. Absolutely. And one last thing I'll give to for people, listeners, while, while we're on this conversation is that this is going to sound harsh, but I'm going to say it anyway. The competition is weak. Most people are really not very disciplined. They're not trying very hard. They're really not pushing. Like someone might disagree, but like this is this is the reality. Like people are not in any endeavor. I'm not just talking about money or whatever, but like most people are not really going that hard in terms of taking care of their body. Most people are not going that hard in terms of like trying to maximize any element of their life. So yep. if you are willing to do things that most people don't want to do, if you're willing to do the legwork, if you're really willing to be that person who's out there and cold DMing people or knocking on people's doors or doing what I was doing, just standing on the street all day long, talking to thousands of strangers, almost nobody is willing to do that. So if you are that rare person who is willing to do it, then you'll find there's not actually, there's less competition amongst eagles than amongst pigeons. So fly high. And I'm, maybe I should- Good that line. Was that a tweet? That was good. <laughs> No, like, but it I will can't be now. drop the mic, but like, yeah. really good. <laughs> no, I think I've said it to a friend before, but I don't think I've ever publicly uh, put it out there. But yeah, like, don't don't be fighting for scraps. Like, if you fly higher, then there's less stuff in your way, actually. And I agree you'll more. be surprised by how many people are willing to are willing to help you. Yeah, my husband and I have a saying, which is every time we see some level of incompetence, we just look at each other and say. For every one of those, it makes it easier to become one of us. And so every time you're annoyed, there's that Marcus Aurelius quote about how expect humans to be, you know, ungrateful, mean, rude in every aspect of your day. And if you do that, then you realize that each one of those humans that is that way allows you to get where you want to get so much faster. I wish more humans wanted, but it's very hard to teach desire. So if you have that desire, and you can back it up with action, you're one of the few who, who do, and you're very rare. Yeah, and you will attract other people at all levels who see that. Like, I've experienced this massively over the past four years. 
I mean, I mean, I had, I, I was interviewed, I interviewed Elon. I mean, I had Elon on the podcast a few weeks ago. Right. And I mean, I remember when he started following me and like DMing me and we were chatting or whatever. And I'm like, I'm like, Elon is a fan of mine. Like, this is interesting. Like, like you don't know if you, especially in this day and age with social media, you put yourself out there, you do what you do, and you will be amazed at the type of people you attract. There'll be people who are, and one thing I've massively learned, one thing I've really learned is that you can inspire people who are, I think people think they can only inspire people who are, um, quote unquote, underneath them in that particular dimension. It's not true at all, right? You can inspire people who are like, who have a thousand times your net worth or who are in better shape than you. Some of the most inspirational accounts I follow on social media are people who are obese and they're getting in shape. Absolutely. Like I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm way ahead of them in the fitness game, but I'm like watching their stuff. And I'm like, man, like this guy is, this guy is on it. Like, I'm like, dude, like I'm watching their stuff. I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not skipping today's gym session. Like they're getting after it. I'll get after it. And you know, you'll, you'll be, that's, that's just something in this age of social media, you put yourself out there and you'll be amazed with all the incredible people you can connect to. Like the amount of people I've had on this podcast at this point, or just had the you know opportunity to meet in person or just chat to online, whatever. And it's like from all these different spheres, like even things I'm not into, like I'm followed by all these MMA fighters and stuff. Like I'm not even, I'm not even into MMA. You know what I mean? Like, but I'm like, okay, cool. Like they're like, yeah, I like, I really lo- like, I like your videos. You know, I love, love what you said on this. I'm like, okay, dope. Cool. I'm now connected with this person and that person and that person. So just do it, you know, put yourself out to the world and um, you'll be amazed by what happens. I love that. Yeah. I think maximum effort is the ultimate attractant. And, you know, Andy Frisella says personal excellence is the ultimate form of rebellion. He's another example. Yeah. And he's, yeah, he's become a friend of mine (laughs) and he's right. If you try to personally excel at something, others feel it because of, of how rare it is. Um, so it doesn't take much in a world full of people who are coasting by. That's for sure. Amen. So what is next for you, Cody? And where can people find you online? Um, ContrarianThinking.co is the newsletter and Cody Sanchez on all the socials. Um, what is next? I mean, we we have one sort of mission at Contrarian Thinking, which is that I think that humans need skin in the game in the things they are doing in order to have personal sovereignty and in order to be truly happy and fulfilled. And so what's next is we hope to help 100,000 people buy small businesses and start small businesses. We're doing it all around the world, but certainly more in the US. And that's what's that's what my entire focus is on. If I can create 100,000 small business owners, I think we can push back on the KKRs and the Blackstones of the world. And I think if we do not, we will not like the world that we live in. And the way to do it is not to buy local, it is to own local and buy local. And um, I would rather there be a Zuby coffee shop that I go to as opposed to a Starbucks any fucking day of the week. Awesome. Cody, I love what you're doing. (laughs) I let one go. Oh. (laughs) Oh, no. It's all good. It's all good. Cody, I love what you're doing. I think you're massively inspirational. Um, I look forward to continuing to follow the journey. And it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Same. Come out to Austin. We'll put you up whenever. 
Awesome. I appreciate it. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang. Y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. Say goodbye your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.